0: Hi, welcome to episode three of the Snapley Title Interesting People's. We made it. Um, I That's have an apology fine. to make. Because this episode is a solo effort. It features the one and only Paul Sminitsky and none of me. Um, the reason for that is because it was recorded in your bedroom, Paul, and I'm, I'm not really welcome in your bedroom <laughs> as far as I know. It was the spare bedroom, Jack, <laughs> with my laptop on the ironing
1: board um, over Skype, which is the practical reason that it was me and not both of us. Um, because our guest today is a lovely man called Sandy Davy, ex-professional football player, Started his professional career in the very early 1960s. Played for my beloved Dundee United. Mm. We were well, both Dundonians. That's what I've learned. Um, and he lives in New Zealand. So it was done at a ridiculous hour. And I just didn't think you would fancy
0: it. Are we upset not to be there? No, I'm, I'm a lazy millennial. And I was in <laughs> bed being complacent about life uh, while you were doing this. But I thoroughly enjoyed it. Great. And I hope you do too. Let's get cracking then. Over to Sandy Davy.
1: So, uh, welcome to episode three of Interesting Peoples. Um, you'll notice that today it's just me, Paul, and not uh, my co-conspirator, Jack. And that is because we're doing our very first Skype interview and we couldn't have chosen a further away location to chat to today's guest. I'm really thrilled as a massive football fan, and particularly a massive Dundee United fan, to be speaking to Sandy Davy, Dundonian, New Zealand-dwelling... Uh, Dundee United Hall of Famer. Sandy, hello and welcome to Interesting Peoples. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you, Paul, and nice to be here. Thank you. Thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Um, It's a gloomy morning here in London. I hope you're having a slightly nicer day out there in New Zealand. No, it's a gloomy evening.
2: (laughs) so we're coming, we're coming into winter, so it's expected for
1: us. To, to, where you guys are in summer, virtually, aren't you? Of, uh, yeah, well, if you can call it summer. The first thing that <laughs> the first thing that um, strikes me, Sandy, is um, that you are a Dundonian, um, but I don't really detect much of a Dundonian accent anymore.
2: <laughs> well, uh, I left Dundee in 1974. I moved to New Zealand. I was in New Zealand for about ten years. Then I moved to Australia. From Australia, I went to the United States. From the United States, I went back to Australia, and then back to New Ze- back to New Zealand. Wow! So somewhere in the mix, I kind of got a little bit of everybody's accent. <laughs> well, now, now when I speak to people, the first thing they'll say to me is, "Are you Canadian?" <laughs> and, have, and you've
1: never lived in I'm, never lived I'm in like, Canada, right? I'm Canada, but you know, <laughs> that's it. Fantastic. Well, we'll I guess we'll get to all of that, but um, the first thing I wanted to kind of get into into with you, Sandy, was as, you know, I'm thinking about the differences between modern day football and probably the football that most of the people that listen to this podcast will know and what football was like when you started out. So let's go right back to your days as a schoolboy in Dundee. Who did you support? Did you go long watch? Who were your heroes? and um, How did you kind of first start playing football?
2: Well, funnily enough, uh, I mean, I grew up playing football, basically, uh, which everybody did back then. Uh, it was virtually the only sport that we had around our region. Uh, rugby wasn't all that great. And, uh, you know, it was just the, the, the norm that you, you were drawn towards football. Um, I started off uh, playing uh, at primary school. Uh, when I was around about 9 or 10, prior to that, we used to just play on the street or in the backyard or somewhere, anywhere that was flat that had a bit of uh, grass, if you were lucky on it. <laughs> and uh, sometimes we used to play like 20 a side, you know, with the jackets and you hear the old cliches, yeah. throw the jackets down and you've got a game. Uh, and it was kind of like that. And I started off, I, I was. I'd never had any great aspirations about becoming a goalkeeper um and funnily enough um i went to school one day at lunchtime and um used to play virtually the whole lunch break uh, and when i got back from having lunch the game had already started so i said to the guy i said hey i want to get on the side and he said okay he said i'll put you on He said, be you got to go on goal and i said no oh, i don't want to go on goal i said as far as i'm concerned i said i'm an outfield player i said i want to because i fancied myself as a bit of a right winger and um Anyhow, he said, well, if you don't go and goal, he said, you're not going to play. So I thought, well, I don't want to stand here for 45 minutes till the bell goes. Um, so I went in goal. And I was in goal probably 10 or 15 minutes, stopped a couple of shots. And one of the guys that was playing, he was the captain of the school team. And he came up and he said to me, he said, um, would you like to play for the school on Saturday? And I'm thinking, oh, yeah. Well, I said, outside right. He said, no, no, I can go. And I said, no, I said, I'm, I don't think you'll do all right. I said, I said oh, oh, okay then. So, as you do, a step up. Uh, so I went and played that weekend, and lo and behold, I, n- I never played that field again from then on in. What's going uh, that, Sandy? The whole thing happened, and of course, that changed me a little bit because at, at that particular time, the only team in Dundee was really Dundee. United were sort of squalling down in the bottom of the second division. And um, so as a goalkeeper, and there wasn't really a lot of coaching or anything that was happening back then, um, I kind of latched on to Bill Brown, who was the goalkeeper for Dundee. And suddenly he became the hero. So what I really did was I used to then go regularly and watch Dundee play, and I never really used to take my eyes off this guy. Even when the ball was down the other side of the field, I was looking to see what he did. And then I tried to sort of mold myself based on what I saw. And I tried to copy it as best I could. Uh, And being as naive as I was, um, and it it worked out. Because, um, you know, when I was 15, uh, I finished up trialing for Dundee, funnily enough, before I signed for United. He'd just left and gone to, to Tottenham. Uh, I, I'd met him quite a few times and I idolized the guy all the way through my early years. And um, and then uh, I, I had the opportunity, as I say, to trial for Dundee and then Dundee United came on board and said, how about coming and trialing for us? And then in the midst of it all, I got a phone call from West Ham. Uh-huh. This was all as a goalkeeper, mind you. Um, So I was kind of almost overawed, really, by the whole scenario. Um, So I finished up. um, I I went down to West Ham first. I spent a couple of weeks down in West Ham. Um, And at that stage, you know, I was like 15, just over 15 years old. Uh, The furthest I'd been was a weekend to Blackpool. (laughs) And here I am in London on my own. And they put me in these digs, which was great. I walk out to training the first morning. The first guy I meet's Bobby Moore, the second guy I meet's Jeff Hurst, the third guy I <laughs> meet's Martin Peters, and I'm standing there completely dumbstruck because I'm thinking these guys are, you know, really big time, and uh, and they were just breaking into the game themselves. Uh, obviously, they were a few years older than me, uh, but I was kind of overawed by the whole thing for a wee while. But the two weeks I was down there, it went really well. And when I was due to leave to come home, they gave me the offer of signing for West Ham and going on the ground staff and seeing how things worked out, one thing and another. So that was in the back of my mind as I was coming back home. Uh, I had told them that I had promised to do the Dundee, Dundee United thing, um, and I would give them a, a decision the end of the following week. So they were happy with that. So I came back, and I I, uh, I trialed for United. Uh, that went well. And then I trialed for Dundee on the Monday. Well, as you can appreciate, I'd basically been a Dundee supporter, so to speak. And uh, that was the thing that was attracting me, plus the Bill Brown scenario, where I would have been sort of going into the club just following his departure. and um, And then... I got a phone call out of the blue a couple of nights after the Dundee trial uh, from Dundee United to say that one of their goalkeepers had gone down uh, ill. And um, they were interested in signing me and they would play me that weekend in the reserves. So it was all sort of one from next to nothing to a choice of, well, three of everything, you know.
1: You've You've made that sound like, I mean, we've gone from a kickabout in the school yard at lunchtime to a a three-way tug-of-war between three senior clubs in in a flash almost over what sort of time scale are you talking about there
2: uh well from the time i started playing football you know on a regular basis at school i would have been about 11 so i played the last year i was at the primary school I then went to secondary school. I played for the secondary school, second second school for uh, about two and a half years. Plus, I also played for a youth club called Butterburn Youth Club. Uh, so, I would say the whole thing was probably four, four and a half years maybe.
1: Right. And uh, <laughs> my my sort of impression of clubs approaching players at that time was... Two guys in long coats turning up and knocking on the door with a bit of paper and speaking to your parents—is that—is that sort of uh, anything? Uh,
2: no, well, not really. I mean, it was—we were talking about the managers here. You know, um, um, Jerry Kerr was the one who came and knocked on my door along with Andy Dixon. I mean, Andy was the trainer back then, and uh, it was all legitimate with you know the parents there. And it was basically the first year. Um, you know, I was playing, but I was—I was basically an amateur. I mean, I could get expenses if I had to go to a game under my own steam. They would give me, you know, petrol or a train fare or whatever. But generally, you know, when I did play for them that first year, I went and trained a couple of nights a week with some of the part-time guys that they had, and then following that on the weekends, I'd meet the the squad at the the ground, uh, and we'd take the bus or the train or whatever to uh, whichever uh, event we were playing at so it it was all it was all really i guess as professional as i would have expected it you know rather than it wasn't um you know, behind the goal with your bag, and you put your boots on, and you left your bag and your clothes there, and you went and played. And at the end of it, there was no showers or anything like that. So, uh, it, it was um, it was good from my point of view to, to have that sort of big step up sort of thing. And um,
1: so, so, was and it th- was it the game on Saturday? The offer of the chance to play on Saturday was what sort of swung you towards you know, signing that. Game? Well,
2: the, the funny thing was, the, the first thing I said to myself was, "Well, look." I need to find out whether I'm any good at this or not, you know, because I was still a little bit overawed by the whole thing, to be honest. And, um, I thought, well, let's give it a go and see what happens. Um, and as luck would have it, it turned out okay. <laughs> Cause at the end of that first season, I got into the first team. And, uh, I mean, I was just, I'll be like 15 and a half, 16 years old. Uh, and suddenly I get the call one day "Oh, so-and-so is hurt. And this guy's gone crook. Um, you're number three but you're now today number one so that was the next thing
1: now if, if a 15 or 16 year old signed a uh signed for a professional football club now it would be kind of you know it's it's the dream job for a lot of youngsters especially football fans and it would be papers but and how, right. how did your friends and react to that and what did your family think and how supportive were your parents was it seen as a as a risk you know how did that kind yeah. of unfold
2: yeah, well, funny enough, you know, my, my, my parents sort of, um, they were sort of shocked and stunned a little bit. Um, I, I'd, <laughs> It's funny how the story goes on. Uh, I mean, they were they were always supportive, but I, I guess it was like me, there was that apprehension. Um, I, I knew there was a risk involved, but I thought, well, I'd rather find out now than kind of drag along and drag along. So let, let's see what the step up really was because, I mean, the the youth club that I played for, they were a pretty decent side. Uh, and we used to do reasonably well in the Scottish Youth Cup. So we would be playing against, you know, pretty good teams from the likes of Edinburgh and Glasgow when we got into the Scottish knockouts. Um, so uh, you fancied your chances because you knew what you were competing against. Uh, the only thing that, and I was always a fairly good size for my age, uh, the big thing was that you're competing against men. And this is always uh, something that you, you look at, especially when you're a youngster. And I used to find this when I got into coaching. The first thing you do when you get there is you oh, "Have you seen the size of that other team? <laughs> now, the size really has nothing to do with it. Is how good are they? And and it's their sort of their skills versus your skills, you know. So technically, if you're as good as them. Uh, or you know, equal, at least equal. Um, you know, you shouldn't have any fear, and that, that was the way I kind of looked at it uh, and thought to myself, well, okay, let's let's go and have a go. So. Um, as I say, when when the phone call came through, I mean, it still didn't stop me from having the butterflies.
1: But um, I thought, well, hey, you know, yeah. let's
2: see how deep the water yeah. is down this end of the pool.
1: And how what was life like as a footballer <laughs> in, in that age? Because I think the perception now is that it's extremely kind of coddled and protected and and detached from real life. So give me some idea, some of the sort of prosaic day to day stuff.
2: Yeah, it's it's a bit more coddled now, uh, you know, but, you know, the way I look at it is this. I mean, there's a lot more to put up with, you know, especially with social media as it is now. I mean, we weren't under the, the microscope the way all of these guys are now. I mean, certainly, you know, stories get blown out of proportion, but it was word of mouth back then, as opposed to now, you know, you've got a guy flicking out a telephone and taking a picture of everybody, and it's their instant gratification uh, on the screen, wherever. Mm. So we we never really had that sort of uh, pressure on us all the time, although at times it is a little bit like living in a goldfish bowl. But you have to sort of look down and say, well, you have to be mature enough to say, okay, I'm above all that. I know that if I go out and do something, it will be in the paper the next day. As opposed to Billy, who you went to school with, if he went and did it, nobody cares. So it, you still had that sort of same sort of scenario at, at my age uh, as a, as a young player, uh, although perhaps not as severe as it is now.
1: That's interesting because uh, that would be the, that would be sort of 61, 62, right? And I think pe- people would not yeah. expect maybe not expect that you to say have said yeah. that.
2: Yeah. You see, I think the way I looked on it, and I I know a lot of the players that I I basically grew up with and and played, um, their attitude was was similar. The ones who didn't have that sort of attitude never made it. I mean, I played at school with, and also in the youth club with a lot of guys who I actually thought would would probably go further than me uh, in terms of the game but who didn't because they, they let themselves down by doing, you know, silly things. I mean, they'd all run off and have a beer when you weren't supposed to and stay out late when you weren't supposed to. And, you know, like everything else is to say, you get seen out at 11 o'clock at night and you've got a couple of beers in your hand. The next thing you know, it's six beers and you were half before...
1: Uh, the whole thing just sort of blows out of proportion and you mentioned that it was Jerry Carr that signed you there and we're getting quite deep into the weeds of Dundee United history here um, which will be great for United fans but he he was perceived I guess to be probably the first really great United manager that that took the club from as you said maybe languishing in the the lower divisions below Dundee to being a force in football tell us a bit about him what was he like and how was he with you and how was he with, with people
2: yeah the one the one thing about Jerry I mean he was he was a I'll not say a strict disciplinarian but I and I remember one of the first times I I got in the first team it was about the third or fourth game I played and we were playing at home and you always used to get yourself all dolled up from the weekend you know with the jacket and all that and it was back in the day when you know polo necks were all the fashion so I put this nice polo neck on nice sort of sports jacket walked into the into the club hotel uh, and he come across, and the next minute, the finger's wagging, and I'm, and I'm looking, at, come here, you know. So I walk over, and he says, where's your tie? I said, excuse me? He said, it's a collar and tie on a weekend. You don't turn up with that. He said, you get home and get yourself out <laughs> of that, and get back here. Now, I was a 45-minute drive from the hotel. So he sent me all the way back home. <laughs> I had to change into my shirt and tie and come back. And as soon as I walked back, he said, mate, that's a lot better. He said, no, from now on, he said, I don't want to see you with any Polonex stuff on. He said, it's collar and tie. I said, okay, now I know the rules. And he was, he was kind of like that. But the, the one thing that I would give him credit for um, was the, the players that he signed I mean, I spoke to a guy in Scotland the other night and he was asking me the same question. He's got associations with Celtic, but he said to me, you know, how come that a team that was down in the bottom battles of the league um, could go and beat the likes of Rangers and Celtic? And I said, well, we were a good bunch and that's the one good thing I would give Jerry Kerr. He signed a good group of players who were honest, hardworking people who and the nickname Terrors really should tell you what, what we were we would fight and bite and scratch and some of us could play to a fairly high level maybe not as good as the Rangers and Celtics of that day because they had virtually between those two teams the whole Scotland side in their, their squads so for us when we played them we always knew okay they're a little bit better than us perhaps but have they got a bigger heart than we do? So we used to go out there and just, we used to give every single thing. And if they didn't come with their A game, you know, if they turned up and said, well, look, we're Rangers and all we need to do is walk out on the field and they're going to collapse with fear, then they were in for a rude awakening. And that was the thing that really got us through. And I I always credit Jerry for doing that. Uh, As you say, the caliber of the player that he picked, um, you know, worked well because they were good, honest, hard-working people.
1: So who were some of the big uh, or the big characters in the Dundee United team in that early 60s period and who were some of the big characters in the game in Scotland at that time and have you got any anecdotes or wee stories about you know on-the-pitch shenanigans?
2: Um, well, there wasn't too many shenanigans as I say, I mean, but there was all the usual you know, the laughing and joking uh, there was all, I mean, Andy Rowland used to sort of fool around um, some of the, Scandi- well, the Scandinavians were there they were always pretty sort of straight I mean their English was was okay it wasn't all that good um, but there, there was nobody really I, I think when we when we turned up it was all sort of business-like you know uh, and but the good thing about it is we were all mates both on and off the park mm. and, and we were prepared to
1: work hard for each other and that, that was that was the biggest that was the biggest thing. And what about things like uh, things that maybe footballers and even football fans now understand as being a critical part of the game, nutrition and diet and training methods. I mean, how, what was your what was your match day meal, for instance, and was that a cons- well, was that a consideration?
2: Yeah, we we went through all those changes that that happened in that period. I mean, it was it, not long after Hungary had come across and battered England. And it was the first time they'd lost at Wembley. So there was like, well, wait a minute, there's got to be a secret somewhere. So somebody said, well, what do they eat? Okay. So oh, what did you have before the game? So the Hungarian guy said, we had steak. So suddenly everybody was on steak. And then not long after that, it was, oh, the steak's too heavy. It doesn't digest and everything else. Um, it's got to be eggs. And then somebody said, you know, eggs aren't most nutritious enough, da 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 da, it's going to be fish. <laughs> so so every, every few weeks, every few weeks, we'd go in and, and we never knew what we were going to have, but there was none of this, you know, chips and a side salad and beans and a couple of fried eggs as well <laughs> uh, until I came to New Zealand. <laughs> and I, I remember this is a, a story, a sidetrack for me for a minute. The first game I ever played when I came to New Zealand was down in Wellington, and there was about 20 of us all flew down there. And we get in the hotel, and we sit down, and it was the very first week i arrived. And I get in the hotel, and this girl brings out these steak, eggs, chips, beans, fried bread, the <laughs> whole thing. She the, she plonks all these down at the table. And this, I said to the girl, no, no, no. I said, that must be for the staff. I said, this is – she said, no, we've got 18 of those orders. <laughs> Honestly, I couldn't believe the size of this meal. And I thought, I can't eat that. I these players, are tell you, just hold into the whole thing. And we went up and played the afternoon and one.
1: So. <laughs> well, there you go, <laughs> something in <isn't> it. <laughs> before, <laughs> before we just kind of skip forward a little bit in time, Sandy, you mentioned as a kid you played, you know, you play wherever there was a patch of grass and it was 20 a side. Yeah. Do you think that that is something that is negatively impacting the game now, the lack of that sort of just just playing?
2: Oh, de- yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just, it's the same here. I mean, unless uh, some of these kids, unless they've got an absolute bowling green to play on, they're not prepared to go out and kick a ball around. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, when I was living in America, for instance, you know, some of the kids, they'd never see a ball from the day I left them at training till the following weekend when they played. So I used to say to the guy, well, uh, all you're going to do is an hour with me on a Tuesday, an hour on a Thursday. You're never going to touch the ball in between times, whether you're on your own, or with a group, and you're going to play on Saturday, you're never going to do it. And and the attitude they have is that, oh, my mum couldn't this, or my dad couldn't that. And You know, it's the same thing with their equipment. I mean, as soon as I came home, I used to clean all my boots and polish them all up and one thing or another. The kids now, I said, why are your boots all dirty? And, oh, well, mum didn't do this, or dad didn't do that. And I think, but it's not your mum and dad's boots, said, all the equipment is actually yours. And you're the one that should take responsibility for all that. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the same worldwide. It, it, it's the same as here. i got the number of kids in New Zealand who will say, yeah, I want to be a professional football player, and I want to go to the U.K., and I want to do this and I want to do that. And I'll say, well, are you prepared to sacrifice this and this and this? And they say, yeah. Now, a few of them have actually gone overseas, and they're back in five minutes because they said, oh, I didn't realize I had to give up all of that. And I didn't realize that it was going to take this amount of time and effort. You know, the kids just expect it to be handed. You know, I was very lucky. I I was fortunate, right place, right time. Um, And I grasped the opportunities as best as I could. Uh, And I did okay out of it. Um, If I had to go and do it all again, I'd do the same, but I'd try and do it better. Right, Uh, But the kids now, they've got so many other things, you know, Xboxes and Playstations and all the bits and pieces. And they've got so much else that we didn't have. It was football and that was the end of it for us.
1: So, Sandy, one of the really key moments and actually one of the best football related pub quiz questions I can think of is only one British team has a 100% win record in competitive fixtures against Barcelona, the answer, of course, is the mighty Dundee United. And you played in the first two of those games, which was in 1966. Um, now, if you mentioned Barcelona to any kid in the world today, you know they would get so excited, they'd know all about their star players. But when that draw was made and you knew you were going to be playing them... You know what was the chat in the dressing room? What did you think? Did it did it feel as big then as it probably would now?
2: Oh yeah, I mean, it, I mean, both Barcelona and Real Madrid have really been at the pinnacle of of Spanish football. Seems like forever. Um, when when we heard the the draw, um, it, it really stung because the previous season Barcelona beat Chelsea. I think it was five nil or 5-1 or something in the final of the tournament the pre-season the season prior to us playing them so we always knew it was going to be uh, a big big game Um, but as I say you know it was back at the time when we had a really good group of players and and whilst it was a challenge and and it was a challenge that we accepted uh, without fear and and we went out and you know it, it was a Newness for us, in a sense, because the club itself hadn't really travelled all that far and and, and often, uh, and yet here we are, you know, playing against the previous uh, season's tournament winners um, with a huge name, uh, and then of course when when we got to Barcelona, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been there yourself, but you go into the bowels of that stadium, I mean, it's just phenomenal, and then you walk out underground and come up. In yeah. the middle of this yeah. cauldron, um, it, it was yeah, it was sent shivers down your spine.
1: So, before then, I ask you about the game itself, now that obviously in that in 1966, there was no you couldn't go on YouTube and watch those players. <laughs> so, how much did you know about the players in that team, and had you even had you even seen any of them play? Was there a way of that happening?
2: No, it, it was none. There was nothing. It was just they were in red and blue shirts, and we were in <laughs> white shirts. <laughs> That was it <laughs> you know I'd, I'd, uh, I'd heard of the goalkeeper the, the goalkeeper was a guy called Siderni uh, I think he was Italian I'm not 100% certain um, outside of that there was nobody that I, I really I'd heard of per se uh, except the fact that you know they were always in the top one or two of the league uh, as they still are now with, uh, with Real Madrid and um, yeah their, their history was was enormous in fact I've got a I've got the, the poster from the game is actually hanging on the wall in front of me while I'm talking to you now. Uh March twenty five, uh sorry, October uh nineteen sixty six. It's all in Spanish. I, I, uh, think, another, 40, I
1: think I've got eight forty five kickoff.
2: Yeah. Um and the uh, the stadium, funnily enough, I went back to Barcelona about five or six years ago on on a tour and I, I went to the stadium and it was just, I can remember when we went there, um, you know, back in 66. In uh, the stadium was out in the middle of of nowhere. It was, it, there was the stadium and everything around it was just green and fields. At and, that time. And I went back, it's in the middle of town. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like the whole place has been enveloped by by buildings and it certainly it's had a lot of additions to it. It's had an extra tier put on it, and they've got all sorts of offices and souvenir shops and stuff, and huge car parking area. Uh, it's it's changed a bit tremendously, but uh, and I guess uh,
1: you you know you mentioned the team spirit, so so I'm assuming you went out there with, uh, well, let me ask you. I mean, what what did you expect the outcome of the game to be before you went out there?
2: Well we were. funnily enough was we never knew anything else other than hey we're gonna win this. Um and I mean when it happened it was it was like shock horror. I mean we got back into the dressing room and I remember sort of Jerry sort of looking at us and we looked at him and it was a, we were like stunned mullets, you know. <laughs> uh, we we we'd actually achieved something that we 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 couldn't believe ourselves. But in all fairness, I mean, we played as well as they did that night, and um, and got the result that we deserved. I it suits. wasn't like a, it wasn't a fluke, and, no. and that's people have often said that to me, and and I said there's it's the same thing with the game. I I can remember I've got a few photographs that um, that we got from one of the Spanish papers after the game, and um, some of the reports. And judging, you know, from time to time I've read them, I haven't read them for a long while, but um, it it appeared that that there was not really um, a whole load of pressure that was put upon us. I mean, I can't remember other than I remember one save. And you know how we spoke at the beginning of the interview about turning points and, and certain moments where you think, you know, that changed the whole flow of everything. I remember having a save and it was one of those instinctive you wake up and he's looking in the balls in your hands Yeah. and you how did that get there and I'm lying on the ground and I remember thinking they're they're not going to score here you know and I mean okay they did get one but um, that that for me, I thought to myself, it, it kind of switched me on and really put me in the mood. But everybody, honestly, played so well that night. It, it, it was it was incredible. It was the night, as I say, the stars were aligned again when, so uh, we got that shot.
1: So you went 2-0 up. Barcelona scored, I think, with about <laughs> yeah. five minutes or so to go. Yeah. You talked about that sort of slightly stunned feeling in the dressing room afterwards. Yeah. But then yeah. you go back to Scotland yeah. and... I'm guessing by that point things change a little bit because yeah. well, you know we, now, now it's real. Oh yeah, Can well, you remember that,
2: the... That, the the real terror thing started because I mean the people were hanging off in the floodlight pylons and everything I tell you. Uh it was an incredible night. Ground was packed. I think even up till now it's still the highest attended game at Tanadice. That's right, 28,000. We, we took the game by the short and curlies again and and, and just Won it and we won it 2 0. And, and, and it was, you know, the whole world was, you know, are you sure you got this story right? Is it you sure the score's not the other way around? It was all those comments that were coming out, you know, thoroughly totally deserved it. But I think the one thing that probably helped us a bit on the night was I can remember how cold it was, it was perishing. and I think all these guys probably thought hey you know can we play the game in the dressing room Uh, because when they walked out on the beach it was cold the wind was howling
1: yeah
2: uh, so it's you know as I say some things are meant sometimes you know
1: and can you remember this sort of feeling in the dressing room when you got back in at Tannerdice and and you you put out Barcelona
2: it was euphoria it was just you know you wanted to go nuts uh, we all came back down to earth about a week later when we got drawn against Juventus in the
1: next round. So Sandy, let's, dark, jump right. so let's, let's talk about one specific period, which is really interesting for me for a couple of reasons, and that is yep. the summer of '67, when Dun- mm-hmm. a Dundee United team uh, effectively were drafted in to be Dallas Tornado in the NASL season in North America, and I'm really yeah. fascinated with. I've become really fascinated with US soccer. And yeah. I wondered, you know, your recollections of that time. First of all, how did it come about? How was it explained to you? Tell, you know, tell me your memories of that, and then we can sort of dive in a wee bit.
2: Okay. Um, well, first of all, when we were told we were going to go on tour to uh, to the United States, everybody got excited about it because, I mean, really, for us, the United States you only ever saw in a movie. So you you'd think, okay, if it's a movie, maybe it's made up and one thing and another. The other thing, secondly, was then we were told we would be representing Dallas. And of course, you know, Dallas didn't know anything about Dallas other than, okay, it's Texas. John F. Kennedy was assassinated there. End of story. So there was all this excitement that went with it. And then when we started finding out who some of the other teams were, that they were going to represent all the various cities within the United States because what the North American Soccer League had done was they had invited about 10 or 12 teams from all over the world to compete on behalf of some of the major cities in the U.S. in the very first North American Soccer League. So it was quite an exciting time uh, to, to go over there and have that sort of opposition, Uh, and and funnily enough, the, the, the big thing that sort of put my ears up was I had an opportunity, or we were having an opportunity to play against Stoke City, and their goalkeeper was actually Gordon Banks, who had become another one of those idols that I started to look at, you know, as I was progressing with my career. So I thought, what an opportunity to be on the same field, and and, and so that was the excitement and the the the, the furor that sort of went through us about going there. Um, when we when we flew over, and, and as you can imagine, back in those days, the, the, the planes weren't exactly like they are now. Smoking. So so you get into the you get into the thing; it's full of smoke. <laughs> You've got people sitting about two inches in front of you. There's no TV. There's no earphones. There's no music. You're just sitting there going, la, 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 la. There's nothing to do. (laughs) It's boring. But anyhow, I remember we flew flew into uh, John F. Kennedy Airport in New York before we flew down to Dallas. And I remember coming out. We had about four hours in the airport. I remember coming out, and the first thing I saw was a New York policeman and it was back in the day when they wore those sort of hexagonal shaped
1: yeah. hats. Yeah. And they had this,
2: yeah, they had the tunic sort of thing and they had the the bat on which was on a chain on his wrist. And the guy used to walk along and he used to twirl it around the chain, you know? Yeah. Just like it did on the and I was thinking, God, it's like the movies. <laughs> all these yellow taxi cabs flying around all over the place. And you're thinking, It's it's it is, it's a movie. it's, it's you know it was it was quite difficult to comprehend, and then you walked into somewhere like Times Square. We all went up the Empire State Building. It, it, we were like kids in a toy shop, mm-hmm. you know. It, it was just it was just incredible, and um, and then you know we got down to Dallas, and and the people were just fantastic. And of course, we we started meeting all their big time stars because at that stage, the Dallas Cowboys were. The team, you know, and uh, we we met all their players, and it, yeah, it was it was it was fantastic. It was, it
1: was it was amazing. And so tell us some of the people that were in that squad with you. Walter Smith, I think, was in that team.
2: Yeah, Walter Smith. There was oh, there was know, a ton of them, you know. Um, let me see. There was uh, Tommy Miller, Jimmy Briggs, Doug Smith, Walter, Jackie Graham, uh, Finn Dossing, Moensberg. I mean, all, all the big-name players that we had uh, at that time, uh, you know, Dennis Gillespie, uh, all those guys, they, they were all there. Uh, fanta- fantastic group of players. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it. it. It was an incredible time. And, of course, that was, funnily enough, um, the first time. We, when we played for them, we, we took over the persona of Dallas Tornadoes. And we played in Orange. And I know that when they came back following like that tour, they, they, there was some talk about how they preferred the orange to the white. But it didn't actually happen on that particular tour. I think they went back a few years yeah. later. 69, and I think they went back, yeah. I, I'd left, I'd gone to, to Luton. And um, and they went back over to
1: Dallas, and then they
2: conformed to the orange. And, and so, what,
1: so what were some of those games like? Um, as we mentioned earlier, that all of the teams in that league that summer were actually British teams that had been brought over, and I think that that was because there was a bit of a soccer war emerging between the NASL and the another sort of rival league. So that so my understanding yeah. is the reason that the UK teams were brought over was to fast track the whole thing and get the league started that summer. But there was Wolves, Hibs, Stoke City, as you mentioned, Aberdeen. Yeah. I think West Ham perhaps that's, were involved in that as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there was a few.
2: There was a few overseas clubs as well. Uh they had uh, Cagliari from Italy, uh Ciero from Uruguay, oh. uh Bangu from Brazil, they were there, Shamrock from, from Ireland.
1: Yeah.
2: So there was there was more than just the UK clubs, you know. Um so it was a, it's a good international sort of a flavor. Um the fields that we played on were pretty reasonable, although most of the time they were football fields. But you American know, American we, we football like,
1: fields, you mean. Yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, but you know, we, we'd uh, we'd go and play in some of the big baseball fields. And when we went to Houston, uh, for instance, we played in the Houston Astrodome, uh, and that was the first time we'd ever played on a synthetic surface, uh, which was dreadful because, it's, as I say, you know, back then the surface wasn't like the surfaces today. Um, it, it was just like a, a green. It was like the top of a snooker table.
1: Yeah. Hard just, and
2: tough yeah, yeah. It, it was just rolled out. It was rolled out on sand, and the sand was packed underneath. And sometimes, if it wasn't dead level, the, like the ball would come in and hit one of the one of the lower patches, and it wouldn't bounce. It would just hit the ground and stop. And and it must have been finally,
1: quite quite a thing from a from a, a boy from Dundee, you know, finding himself standing inside the Houston Astrodome in the mid sixties. I mean, can you remember oh, thinking, yeah. "My God, <laughs> how did I get here?" I,
2: well, it was incredible. I mean, w- when you drive up to it, the size of it alone. And then a few weeks later, we played at the Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium in New York. And you drive in, and the same thing again. You'd seen it on movies, you'd seen it on TV, and it was all about baseball games. And suddenly you're inside this incredible stadium, um, thinking this is it's dreamland. It's absolute dreamland. You, know?
1: so you mentioned that you were on the same field as Gordon Banks, but were there any other kind of big stars that, that, that you played against that stick out?
2: Uh, Well, Jim Baxter was there. He was out there with Sunderland. Uh, I mean, Jim was a fantastic player. Um, I mean, over the years, I've I've played against a whole bunch of stars, I mean, irrespective of, um, you know, where we were. In, In fact, uh, there was a guy asking me in a local newspaper here a few months ago, he uh, said, is there anybody of note that you played against? Because the thing with New Zealand here is it's predominantly rugby. Um, so I started sort of rolling names off. Um, and he, he sort of looked at me and said, to say, well, I know some of these guys, but I don't know all of them. But I was rolling off names like, you know, Troutman, Best, Baxter, Bremner, You know, and he's sort of just looking at me completely blank. (laughs) And and, uh, Charlton, oh yeah, isn't he a director of a club somewhere? You know, it didn't actually relate to his playing career. It was basically, you know, uh, oh yeah, that's what he is. You know, an amazing,
1: an amazing time. So then, um, you left Dundee United shortly after. I guess shortly after that, right? And you went. Down south to play about fifty five or sixty games for Luton. How did that come about, and how was your time down close to me?
2: Uh, it it kind of came out of the blue, actually. Um, I, you know, it was back in the day when there wasn't all the hoo ha around. It suddenly you get uh, the, somebody would come down from the, the office above and say, "Have you got a minute? The boss wants to see you." And most of the time, you'd think, "Oh, I'm in the poop." <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember going into of the office, and he's. Jerry just said to me he said we've got an offer from uh, from Luton Town uh, apparently there'd been a scout floating around he'd come and watch me play a few times um, and it was back you know I think the, the, the shoe's a little bit different than it is now where the players have got um, how could you put it the, the players have got more control now than, than it had back then it was the clubs had all the control so if the club wanted you to go they sorted it all out and you went and if you wanted to go, but you couldn't organize a fee or whatever, uh, they used to just keep a hold of your registration. So you were you were stuck there with nowhere to go sort of thing, uh, mm-hmm. and, and they were really controlling you. So um, <clears throat> as I say, Jerry just said to me, there's an opportunity there for you. Um, what do you think? You know, we won't stand in your way, blah, blah, blah. So I thought, well, okay, I'd, I'd like to talk to them and see where we're at because at that particular point <coughs> – Sure, I think I was sort of in and out of first team. Uh, it was like myself and Donald, I think we're, we're vying together. And, um, and then I went down and I spoke to Alan Brown down at, uh, down at Luton. I liked the set up. Uh, they were up and coming. I mean, when I, when I got down there, the, the football was, was certainly a, a much higher standard than, than uh, up in Scotland. Um, and they were on this incredible run. Um, I mean we went for about two seasons never lost a game at home just missed out on promotion the first year I was there and then the second year we got promoted and um, and then Eric Morecambe came in Uh, he, he came honestly he was the most unbelievable person I've ever met he was just the way he was on TV hilarious he'd get on the bus he'd crack jokes from from Luton to Newcastle and, and
1: <laughs> way back so he would he, actually, was, he would travel with the team to games and
2: yes, yeah, keep yeah on, so. <laughs> he used to come on to come to us. I then,
1: didn't know yeah, that that's Ale- amazing
2: yeah Alan, Alan Brown uh, Alan Brown left and uh, Alec Stock came in uh, Alec had been at, uh, at Fulham at that stage in QPR and um, he came out he's a fantastic manager his understanding and knowledge I mean Not going to say he would be by far uh, the best manager I've ever played under, but the most honest, open, lovely, lovely man, absolutely lovely man.
1: Uh, And you mentioned. you mentioned that uh, you felt it was a, a it was a step up moving from Scotland to England, but was that just in the yeah. quality of the play? Was that reflected in the like, kind of setup in the club and the way that you were treated as a player? And and also, were you, were you a single man at this time, Sandy? We was a, were you no, no I was family? I was married. Yeah,
2: no, no, I was, I was married. So we had to move the kid lock lock and barrel. Um, down there but no it was the the setup, the, the, the club uh, they were very very progressive uh, we had a chairman who was I suppose back in those days he was he was plowing a fair bit of money into it so the facilities were improving uh, the caliber of player that we were signing was improving and the results were coming on the field you know there was a success uh, every time we played a home game I mean the ground was virtually almost full um, so the, the whole thing was just really going whereas at United it was uh, inconsistent in a sense where you'd win a few and lose a couple you know what I mean yeah. whereas at Luton yeah. it was, you know, we were on this roll and everybody wanted to get on the roller rollercoaster with you
1: Fantastic and then, so from there um, you played I, I, I hate to bring it up because it sounds like you took a bit of a walloping but you went to Southampton and you but you only played one game there but it was against yeah. Man United, right? And we were absolutely battered. 5-1? Yeah,
2: <laughs> John Best took us apart, believe me. <laughs> what had actually happened? I mean, when I, well, the same scenario again, uh, right out of nowhere, um, I got dragged into the office at uh, at Luton, and um, we just got promotion into the second division. And um, and um, Alex Stock said, look, we've got an offer coming from Southampton. And then he went back about Apparently, they tried to get me before when I was at United and they couldn't organise a fee, etc. But he said, they've now come back. And he explained a little bit. But, I mean, I was unaware that anything like that had ever taken place because, as I say, back then, the player was the last one to hear, you know. Now it's the players that set up the moves. (laughs) But, um, anyhow, um, same sort of scenario, uh, I I wasn't a hundred percent sure I wanted to go, but it was. I thought to myself, it's first division, and when I got there, Eric Martin, who I mean I knew Eric from his days in, in Fernland, um he he was down there and he wasn't playing playing particularly well, and uh, there was another guy there called Campbell Forsyth who was playing in the Scottish side. Well, they were trying to move Campbell to the side because of his age, etc. And um, I went down there thinking, well, okay, first division, I've got a shot at it. Unfortunately, or fortunately, as the case may be, once I got down there, Eric sort of thought, okay, lights come on. He started playing. (laughs) And in all fairness, he played out of his tree for about two years. Never got injured until that one day he got injured against, uh, I think it was the week before, I think it was Leeds. They played Leeds the week before Man U. Uh, And I got drafted into the team. And as crazy as it may sound, I didn't play too bad. (laughs) (laughs) If I'd have had a stinker, this would have been an absolute nightmare because they just, honestly, they were just dreadful. But um, that particular day, I mean, United were sensational. Um, The pitch was like a bog. Uh, The rain was belting down the whole time. And George Best was... I just stood and well, not all the whole time, but I just stood there. My one claim to fame is he never scored.
1: He didn't, <laughs> but, but he, there was. um I think four of their goals were scored by by Alan Gowling, right? There was one. one uh, oh, hi, you must hate him. Yeah, that, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't met him since. You have. Yeah, it's uh, funny you mentioned yeah, that, I, You mentioned earlier that it's quite hard, sort of, in your mind to separate one game from another. But but that one, I mean, you've told me. You've mentioned the sort of the standard of the opposition, what the pitch was like, what the weather was like, even for that game. I yeah. suppose that's what a Tonkin does does for you. right?
2: Yeah. Well, this is it. You always you always remember the bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I've got nothing to tell you. It's
1: good. Really? Well, well, we'll skip on. We'll skip on from your time at Southampton, and and, and before we get to, to New Zealand, which I'm really interested in. You went back yeah. to United. You played a, a bunch of games there over. I think you were, the, were you back there for like three years, but, maybe,
2: yeah,
1: but it maybe in, yeah. in a under a slightly different role. I think it seems like you weren't as regular um as regularly in the first team at that time. But yeah. that would have been the Jim McLean years, the Hamish yeah. McAlpine years.
2: Yeah, Hamish Hamish had come in I, Hamish was there just as I was leaving. He was like the number two to Donald. Donald Mackay. And then Hamish started to take over from Donald then when they signed me I think I was actually signed more as a backup but the thing was at that stage I had now realized that okay I'm just going to keep banging my head on a block wall here at Southampton because I'd gone to see the manager and said hey look I came here on the assumption that I was going to get an opportunity and I haven't really been given that opportunity not that it was really most of my doing and I could understand that because you know, Eric Martin had been playing so well that it was difficult for him to sort of fit me in. But even when there were certain certain games that you'd think, well, okay, he'll put me in here because it's not against strong opposition, like they're doing now where, you know, when you're playing in the Cups, a different guy goes in goal as opposed to the guy that's in the league. And I, I admittedly, that now they're, they're playing a lot more games than they did back when we played. But I thought, well, at least I would have got an opportunity, but it never ever eventuated. So I thought, well, on that basis... Uh, I, I'll, I'm going to go back to United because I, I, I went back to what I knew and I knew the club and I knew Jim I mean I played against Jim uh, dozens, dozens of times really when he was at Dundee and at Kilmarnock so um, it, it was it was a no brainer really uh, to uh, to not go
1: back I explain to people who are, who are maybe not young United fans that Jim McLean is really I mean he's a he's considered to be a bit of a god amongst not just United fans but I suppose in Scottish football because he really turned the club around right and yeah. it was yeah. it was well known for being um strict and a disciplinarian and yeah. a lot of players had problems with him I listened to a great interview yeah. with Michael O'Neill who's the Northern Ireland manager now recently and he talked about his time under McLean and you know it sounded like it was quite it was quite difficult for him but it was Jim it, so it was it was Jim McLean that took you back and Tell you know what, what was he like as a manager, and did you get a sense that when you joined the club at that time, something special was happening?
2: Well, we the funny thing was not long after I got back there, I, I was in in the team and out the team and in the team and out the team, and there was nothing really regular. And then uh, I think Hamish got hurt, and I got back in, and we went on this crazy run. We just kept. You know, especially on the cup games, we started to win a few. The next thing we, we knew, we were almost in. Well, we were in the semi final, and um, you know, it was it was like it was in the stars really uh, to, to get there. And of course, the club had never really been to a final. We'd been to a couple of Scottish games, uh, Scottish Cup games, and League Cup games where we got as far as the semi. Uh, I think it was around sixty four. Uh we played Rangers a couple of times at Hamden and you know we got done two, one, three, two. It was almost the last hurdle and you fell. Yeah. Of and then suddenly we found ourselves in the semi-final against Hearts. And um we played the first game, finished up a draw, and then we got them in the replay and, and we, we won that. And you know, you talk about Jim being a strict disciplinarian. We came in after that game. I think we beat hearts. I think it was 4-2 or or something like that. And we came in and everybody was just ecstatic. And he came in and he almost ripped the door off the hinges. And he ripped into every one of us for for allowing them to score two. I'm thinking to myself, we've just got into the cup final for the first time in this club's history. And he just tore us apart. I couldn't believe it. I sat in the corner and shook my head. But um, Jim, Jim was—he uh, he wore it on his sleeve, you know.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, and, and I, and I buy them for that. I mean, you do the business; they can't—they can't say anything. And uh, there was a lot of guys, um, I, get, I guess, got a little bit upset with the fact that uh, you know they couldn't take it. So you, you've got to be honest if you're if you're playing badly and you've made a mistake and you put your hand up and say, "Hey,
1: sorry, my fault." Um, so you just mentioned that that what you're talking about is there's the 1974 Scottish Cup final the first it was the first Scottish Cup final first meaningful final really that the club that dun united had had reached didn't go so well on the day but can you remember the starting 11
2: uh, let me see the starting 11
1: i've got it in front of me by the way so i'm going to okay. i'm going we'll do a score test
2: i'm going to go uh gardner Copel. Uh, uh Copeland, uh, Smith, Smith?
1: Yeah. Copeland. Tay Yeah. Uh, uh
2: Knox or Fleming? Both. Gray.
1: Yeah.
2: In Houston. And I think the Stubbs were Andy Rowland and Tommy Traynor.
1: Correct. That's amazing. <laughs> Top marks. And what, what, I mean, do you have very vivid memories of that game? That must be one that sticks out. When there was a dog on the pitch, I think, in that match, was there?
2: <laughs> I can't remember the dog.
1: Maybe I've got I remember, that wrong, but...
2: I remember the first goal. I remember the first goal, Harry Hood. Uh, I I come re- running out, and I tell you what, I thought to myself, I'm going to take his head off. Because... <laughs> Back in the days when you could. <laughs> and I thought to myself, this thing comes up, it's just going to, I'm going to, and it, honestly, I've never seen a ball bounce so perfect for him in my life. It just bounced up just about shoulder high. And he just stooped. And I had, I'd always had my hand on the back of his head, on the front of his head rather, to smack him. And he just flicked it. And it, was, it was like a fraction of a second. And I remember it going over the top. I thought, ah, you, yeah. <laughs> you know. But um, as I say, it was it was one of those things, and I and I think when I look back on it now, there was a lot of us. It was our first experience. I mean, there was like a ninety thousand at the game or something, and uh, the place was absolutely rocking. And there was probably about eighty five thousand of them. We were, were probably all shouting for Celtic.
1: Yeah,
2: sure. Uh, yeah. Second goal I can remember it was Stevie Murray. Uh, I remember he screamed one from about ten or twelve yards. In the low down to my left um, that was the second uh, and the third one I think was Dean's it was right at the last minute I, and I thought really at the end of it that goal to me it flattered them I mean we started off a little bit tentatively and a little bit nervous I think because it was our first experience of it um, and I would have thought 2-0 okay I can live with that the 3-0 you know they, they scored with Oh, a minute or two to go, and that was that was sort of it, sort of thing. Eighty
1: you nine know? minutes, and some there were some yes. players in that Celtic team as well. I'm looking here: Daniel McGrain, oh, okay. Billy McNeil, yeah. Jimmy yeah. Johnson, Kenny Dalglish, Dixie Deans, yeah. managed yeah. by Jock Stein. So, yeah. um, I mean, nobody, he, he
2: was you know, he was another guy that I used to idolize. Jock Stein for me was one of the gentlemen. Absolute, I adored the man. He was he was a lovely, honest guy. In fact, he came out of here. Um, he came out of here. Prior to the '82 World Cup, uh, just after they had the draw, and they'd made the draw that um, you know put us in the same group as Scotland, um, and I had quite a long chat with him. But uh, he was up in Auckland. He went to the one of the golf clubs up there and did a bit of a talk with a dinner. And uh, lovely, lovely man. Lovely man. Of course,
1: Jim McLean was actually his assistant. That's right. And uh, Josh, not a lot of people will know that John Steen, I think, played one game for Dundee United in, during the war, during the war years, oh, I believe. I never knew that. I never there you go. Knew that. Oh, I was able to. There you go. Um, so so um, from there, from that United period, I guess, what I'm guessing, you had to make what was one of the biggest decisions of your life, which was that you moved from there to New Zealand, which is a massive move in footballing terms, but just geographically, especially at a time, you know, pre-internet, pre-Skype, how yeah. did that come about you know what was what were you thinking well, how, how big a deal was it? it
2: it was it was a a big deal really in a sense that <clears throat> a couple of years prior to that <clears throat> i had a friend who was married to um um a relative of mine a distant relative of mine and he came over to um new zealand um and joined the New Zealand Navy. He was, he was actually from Blackpool originally. <clears throat> and he married a girl from Dundee. And the New Zealand Navy commissioned uh, a freight called the HMNZS Canterbury. And he came over when it was commissioned, and he was stationed in Portsmouth when I was living in Southampton. And we got together on quite a fair few occasions. And I started talking to him a little bit about New Zealand and how it compared with the UK. And I said, Well, I've never been. Uh, I've spoken to a few people who've been, and the, they said it's like Scotland with sunshine. That, that was how they <laughs> described it. And and they're not wrong. The South Island, if you can go to the South Island in New Zealand, you'd think you're in Scotland. <laughs> The only thing that gives it away is the sun. <laughs> but <clears throat> so anyhow, we we just talked back and forth like that. And he was involved with a club in um, in New Zealand, uh, and he said to me uh, at that stage, I was sort of this is before we went on this silly run in the cup. This would have been about 1972, I guess. And um, we we discussed the two countries, and he said to me, he said, "Have you ever thought about?" going somewhere else and playing because I'd always said to him look I've, I've visited quite a lot of countries during the course of my football career and there are a lot of places I would prefer to live than the UK <laughs> <laughs> purely and simply number one because of the weather and number two because of the standard of living so that was really how the conversation started and then as as the months and weeks went on, um, he'd come back and then he said to me one day, he said, I'll put something out there to you. He said, there could be an opportunity. He said, if you wanted to come to New Zealand, he said, I've got a guy who's the chairman of this club in Auckland. He said, they'd be willing to sponsor you out. And he said, it was, it was back in the day when you could emigrate.
1: Yeah,
2: And it yeah. was it was like, I think it was like about 40 pounds or something to to get the family and you out there. So um, they were going to do all the paperwork and do all that, go out. He said, we'll jack you up with a job and we'll do all this. And he said, you can go and play, play for the club. So I thought to myself, nah. and I wasn't 100% sure. So as the next few months or so went on, I, I, it started to become you know, more and more sort of obvious to me that I I, I was leading towards wanting to do it uh, because, I, as I say, I was in, I was out, I was out, I was in and things weren't quite... And, and I looked at the way the country was and I thought to myself, I think there's going to be a lot more opportunity for my children and the family here in New Zealand than there was back in 72. So I, I said to the guy, well look, try and put the wheels in motion and, and see how it goes. So he then came back to me and he said, yeah, this is what you have to do. So the next thing I started sending stuff off to New Zealand House down in London, and they sort of wrote back and said, yeah, you could you would be accepted. It was this and, this and this and by the time I'd got through to it, I actually went to the club and, and Jim was the manager at the time. And I said, Jim, I've got an opportunity to do this and go to New Zealand. Uh, I said I can't see myself, you know, getting back in on a regular basis. But I mean, because Hamish was playing well. I mean, on all fairness to him. And um, I said to him, "I've got this opportunity," and he said, "Well, if you want to go, you can go." So I said, "Oh, well, that's a sort of nice attitude to have." You know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> try and talk me out of it. <laughs> so, um, anyhow, a few months passed, and as I say, we we started going on this on this crazy run. And the next thing I knew, we were sitting just before we played in the, in the semis and he got me into the office one day and he said, um, he said, I've had a change of heart. He said, we're not going to let you go. Oh, wow. Now mm. at this stage, I'm about 90% down the track with all the paperwork and applications all done, signed, sealed. I'm just waiting on the <laughs> final pictures. And he's now saying to me, we're not going to let you go. So I said, oh, okay, well, here's the deal. I may have to stop playing for two years, but I'm prepared to do that. So I said, as far as I'm concerned, I said, I'm going. You gave me permission. It's not like I did it off my own bat and didn't tell you. I've told you for the last six months, this is what I'm doing. You've done absolutely nothing to try and stop me from doing it. So I'm just going to go ahead. and so. Well, the next thing I know, a couple of weeks before uh, the final, He asked me to come back to the office, and I've got to sign a paper. I don't know. It's probably no longer valid. I had to sign a paper to say that when I left Dundee United, should I ever come back to the U.K. to live on a permanent basis, they had first refusal on my signature. So I I signed that paper, and... Well, obviously, I, I haven't really been back to to play again. But um, yeah, that, so that that was uh, that was my last little trip to um, to to Dundee, and then of course we had the um, we had the semi final. We won that. We got to the final, and whatever happened in the final happened. And and you know that's that's the way it went. And and uh, I mean, I've sometimes I sit down and think to myself. Maybe I should have stayed and had another few years, and in fact, I probably am leaning towards that, having said that, I can honestly say that from the time I've arrived in New Zealand till now, I haven't regretted it, so you know what I'm saying it's easy yeah. to second guess, yeah. Yeah. but I'm not either happy or unhappy that I made the decision that I made. Kids are fine they're, they're doing good, so you
1: know and you pl- ended up playing full international football for New Zealand which was I guess was something that you probably didn't foresee when you started this thought process no,
2: no. when when i when I was uh, I, well I was here probably about six months and I got a letter from uh, New Zealand Football Association asking me to attend a meeting um, it was a World Cup meeting uh, for the I think it was the 78 I think it was the 78 uh, World Cup. Because they never, they didn't have a clue what was
1: going on. They really didn't. You mean in footballing uh, terms?
2: Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'll give you an idea. They send this letter out to all these players and they get all the players to come into the Auckland Football Association headquarters and they sit down and they give us all this questionnaire. And basically, one of the questions was if you qualify from the group stages, what do you think you should be paid? Per player, and I had a, one of the guys who was sitting there, and he was well say an experience he was one of the good top players yeah? yeah and um he said to me he says, What do you think i said well, what what do i think i said well i, said, I, I don't know i said what, what do you think?" and he says to me, he said, Do you think if I asked him for fifty dollars it would be too much <laughs> and i said what <laughs> So, do you have any idea how much money this thing's worth? And back in '82, it was not worth
1: what it's worth now, yeah. but it was
2: certainly a lot more than fifty bucks. But that was the sort of naivety
1: of a lot of the guys here. But what they, was they, it? What uh, was it that qualified you to play for New Zealand? Just residency at that time. That seems like well, you...
2: what what actually had to finish up happening. Happening was you had to be there for a minimum of two years. And then what would happen was you then had to make application for residency or New Zealand citizenship. Now, when I made the application, it used to take at least another two years for the application to run. So when they started to the qualify, I was halfway through the application, yeah. so I then at that stage, I had to withdraw from the squad because I was an, an, an ineligible player because I hadn't followed through uh, the paper process. So I had to wait until after. In fact, I, I got all the immigration cl- uh, clearance and stamps and um, the uh, New Zealand Citizenship Certificate and everything about, I think it was about two or three months after the 78 World Cup, yeah. which yeah. qualified me for the next one, the 82 one, but I dipped out on, on that the 78.
1: So you did. So New Zealand didn't qualify for '78. They hadn't qualified for the World Cup ever no, until they, to that point. But they, they did they, qualify. They did qualify in 1982. But you didn't. Yeah. You didn't go to that, did you? Or you didn't play no, in that?
2: No, no, no. I was. Uh, let's just put it this way: I was uh, caught in a. Um, I said a, a bit of a bun fight. It was um it was like a power struggle with two guys that wanted the coaching job for the A2 World Cup. Um, And unfortunately, my guy didn't win. Um, And um, I got left out. But at the end of the day, I mean, it was that long ago. I'm kind of over it now. But at the time, I was was a bit irritated because I played – I got, I got a letter from the New Zealand Football Association uh, inviting me, if I was available, to go and represent New Zealand in the Merdeka tournament in Kuala Lumpur in uh, Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Uh, sent the letter back and uh, I said, yeah. So then I got a phone call from a person, let's just say, and uh, I was advised that if I went on that trip, um, it, I wouldn't be looked upon... Uh, in terms of the World Cup squad so uh, I thought oh okay we're going to play the political stuff so I said to the guy well look if I'm not good enough don't pick me but I said I could break my leg halfway through this season and um, you wouldn't pick me anyway so that that was the end of that so we went to the tournament we finished third and we finished third really with probably about half a youth team because a few of the other experienced players had also received the same notification that I had. So when, when we came back, I went and played that full season. Now we played 22 league games. We won 20 and drew two.
1: Wait, which club was this at that time, Sandy? Who, I, I, was, I was with, I was with Mount Wellington at this stage.
2: which was another club from Auckland. Yeah. And, um, I said at the end of the and plus we won the won the uh, what they call the Chatham Cup, which is our equivalent of the Scottish Cup. This is the New Zealand equivalent, and um, and then they picked the World Cup squad, and I wasn't even in it. So I thought, okay. (laughs) So the um, the the reason I was told was that they they wouldn't pick me because of my age. Right. I thought, well, I've just I've just completed a full season with. Obviously, you know, twenty out of twenty-two conceded fourteen. Okay, not good enough. So, um, so that was that. So I, I I thought, okay, fine. Uh, That was that was the end of that. And then um, I I just let it go. And funny enough, I finished up actually going because when it was made public that um, I hadn't been selected, one of the big travel companies here, they rang me up and asked me if I would act as a guide for a whole group of about 30 people that were going to Spain. Because I'd been to Spain many a time, you know, with football, um, would I act as a guide for this group? Uh, and went to we went to all the group games. So I was actually there, but not in an official capacity.
1: And, and bizarrely or ironically enough, in the same group as Scotland, which included yeah. at that time a lot of great yeah. Dundee United players, probably that really the strongest period in, in United's history so a, yeah. a, a little square I mean, of the circle
2: I remember sitting there watching David Airy against Brazil you know and uh, thinking you know what could have been what should have been mm. who knows but it's it's you know it's it was 100 years ago now so I kind of just uh, one of those things disappointing but
1: Sandy, you've given me you've given me so much of your time, and honestly, this has been so fascinating. I feel like I feel like I've barely had to ask you anything, and you've just got you've just kind of let it flow. But yeah. maybe just as a wrap up, you know, do do you still how closely do you still follow football? Do you have your eye on United? I have to ask on behalf of all United fans, what do you think about what has happened this season? And you know, kind of how do you look back on your your overall career as a as a Professional football
2: player well um, in terms of following football I mean I follow football religiously in the UK um, one of the first things I always do I always look at the United scores um, in, in terms of uh, this year uh, sadly disappointed uh, but um, I'm, I'm a firm believer you know look, what will be will be uh, here we are here's the deal, this is what we have to do to get out of it, so let's go and sort it. So I'm, I'm hoping that that's the sort of attitude um, they'll they'll need all the support that they, well, they can muster uh, to get back in again. It's not going to be easy, but I hope that the, the, the team is, um, you know, has got the terror situation <laughs> the same way that we had where we fight, bite, and scratch, because I know that you know, from my time at Luton, uh, how we got out of the third into the second division was we had to fight and bite and scratch our way out, and I'm pretty sure that the championship now would have to be similar to that. It's not going to be easy playing silky, silky football. Uh, so um, let's just dig down deep and and do what we used to do best, get back on the front foot again, and, I, and I'm looking forward to having them back in the Premiership uh, next season.
1: Me too. And you were inducted into the Hall of Fame quite recently, weren't you? Was That that, that must have been yeah, quite a thrill I,
2: for you. I, so, uh, I went back to the induction of the Hall of Fame in, uh, in February, uh, which was wonderful. I, I, I Absolutely. I was a bit apprehensive about, you know, it's been a long time since I've been back. Uh, and some of the guys I hadn't seen since 1974. Wow. And uh, when I went back, it was, the, the beauty of it was that it was as though I'd never left. Uh, it was. We picked up. We spoke. We spoke about some old times. We spoke about what's gone on in the meantime, and and it was it was fantastic. Um, and I, I couldn't have asked for a better trip. Um, in fact, I, I still talk to the people here about it even now. Uh, they said you went back in February. You're nuts. I said. Well, I said that when they actually when they sent me the invitation, I I, I sent them an email back and I said February. I said. <laughs> and they said well i said can you make it august and, and paul reed he, in, he said february's the only time we can do it so i thought okay but um it, it was brilliant uh, everybody was fantastic um and, and we had a great time when we were there
1: loved it brilliant sandy i think that's a great place to wrap up and i cannot thank you enough for for your time it's been really so interesting and as, you know, brilliant for me as a football and United fan to chat, I think you've given us a great feel of yeah. what, what it was like to be a footballer in that particular era I think you touched on some really you know, pivotal moments in, in your own career history as well as, as Dundee Uniteds and, and given us a great insight so thank you so much for your time Thank you, appreciate it
0: Go for it, we're recording So I've just spent an hour with the podcast that Paul recorded with Sandy Davey I just wanted to thank you for sharing such a, a, a brilliant and evocative story. Um, it definitely shone a light on a, on, a, on a different, maybe even golden age of football. Um, it was a story that was—it was kind of dreamlike in a way. There was something really boyish about it. Feels like it comes from the pages of Victor or yes, yeah, so I'd written Boyd pages of boys. And it's so exactly what I've written, or Shoots magazine or even a William Boyd novel because there, there are so many serendipities in it so many kind of happy accidents you know moments of chance like even the very fact he's a goalkeeper felt like an act of fate and it it, it kind of lent it yeah like a dreamlike quality um I also loved it because I learned a new word what The, the first time I heard you say the word Dundonian I did for a minute just have to pause to think right that is the noun relating to a native of Dundee <laughs> and you said it so glibly and so it like Dundonian, I'm definitely going to use that this year. Well, there's thousands of them, thousands of us all of over course. the world um, a, and what a nice man. A very nice man and, and very humble, which I suppose was part of the story in a way, wasn't it? I suppose you asked the question in, in, in those days, you know the perception that footballers were less mollycoddled and it was perhaps less glamorous than it was today. And it um, it brought to mind a recent documentary I saw about Alf Ramsey '66 team, and the presumption is that Bobby Moore was this megastar. And actually, when Tina, the future Tina Moore, met Bobby Moore, she was wearing the economic pants. She was earning more than Bobby Moore when wow. she met him.
1: Wow, how times have changed! Absolutely, quite apt as we go into as we're recording this. We're just about to start on um, the European Championships 2016. I wonder what those players that will be playing in that tournament would think of life as a footballer in days
0: of yore. Yeah, perhaps in 60 years, there'll be some um, descendant of you, Paul, doing doing a podcast with Dan Sturridge, isn't he? Anyway, thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Great. If you liked this episode of Interesting Peoples, we would really
1: love it if you would tell your friends, share it on social media, post a link, send us a letter... Send us a pigeon, write to the Queen, do something to mark the occasion. Um, And until next time, enjoy.